Amen. Thank you. And for that great special this morning, and a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ again in Matthew chapter number 16, as we begin this morning, and we're going to jump in pretty fast here, the Bible talks about here many times, and we talked about this last week, whenever Jesus came and called Peter and and, uh, Andrew and James and John, uh, that he said, if you Come after me and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So there's the idea conveyed of following, being discipleship. And certainly this morning, if I were to ask, uh, go around the room and take the time to ask if who considers himself to be a Christian, I, I doubt seriously if anyone here would say that they're not. Uh, we identify uh, as Christian. We identify as a people that uh, are believers or at least on some level a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, but that means a lot of things. Okay, so uh, there are a lot of people that would say, yes, I'm a Christian that really don't have uh, much of an idea about who Jesus really is or what he's done or why he's necessary or why salvation is necessary. We talk to people often that would say, uh, yes, I'm a Christian, but yet they don't understand uh, even the basics of uh, our beginnings in the Garden of Eden and the fall of man and the need for salvation. And so a lot of times when you uh, grow up in this part of the world, this part of the country, uh, we simply claim Christianity as our identity. It's kind of our heritage. It's been passed on. thing is, is that salvation isn't passed on. Salvation is a decision and it's a relationship for every individual with the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one can choose that for you and no one can choose that for me. Everybody must come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look here and we consider and kind of build on where we've been the last couple of weeks, I just want us to kind of take a moment and uh, look inwardly and and say, you know, I self identify identify of this but am I really truly a follower now there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh uh variance to that term as well someone could be someone that's following from a distance uh someone that's uh, you know following half-heartedly uh there could be someone that's following uh like a real up close and personal right on someone's heels and then picking their brain and uh and seeking their wisdom and their knowledge uh, and so when we talk about these terms, we talk about the terms of being a disciple, of being a follower, of being a believer. It's important that we don't that we do not fall into the trap of uh, defining what those things mean culturally. Uh, we don't want to let, allow the world to define for us who and what we are. We want Jesus to define for us who and what we are. By the way, when the world defines those qualities then they're subject to change frequently. It would be hard to be a follower of Christianity or of Jesus uh, if I allow the world to dictate what that means because I would spend a great deal of my time just trying to keep up with what that means today. Uh, when I define it biblically, it's set for eternity. I don't have to worry about the shifting sand. I don't have to worry about the whims of, uh, of the politics of the day. I can just put my focus and my faith and my trust in Jesus. Uh, man's opinion of what it means to follow Jesus varies widely, but the Bible is 
very clear. And so we want to understand uh, that we want to follow Jesus on his terms by his definition. Now, if you would turn back, and I alluded to this before I read our text this morning, I do want to take uh, a moment to reestablish or to well establish the context of what's taking place here with these disciples as they are uh, assembled. In verse number 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And so this is really what we've been talking about already here, that he is not, and Jesus is saying, listen, how does the world define me? And then he says, how would you define me, knowing that they've been led by God the Father and the, his teaching and his influence? Uh, and so in essence, the question is this, how does, how does God define me? How does the world define me? How does God define me? What has God revealed unto you? And Peter answers that you are his son. Uh, in verse 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, a little pebble, a little stone, and upon this rock, a giant boulder, if you will, I am talking of himself, Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen, the gates of hell prevailed against Peter for a time. But they never prevailed against Jesus. And so in the own text of the scripture, he explains further who he is by what we know historically. In verse 19, and I will give uh, unto thee uh, all the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Uh, why? Because he wants the spirit to reveal to them. He wants the father to reveal to them. We have to give people the space to come to the realization that the word of God is true. That the Holy Spirit leads and convicts our hearts so that we as we're guiding folks uh, that they see Jesus. I don't want to build a relationship with someone and have them trust in Jesus because they like me and because I like them. I want them to put their faith and trust in Jesus because Jesus touched their heart, because the Holy Spirit brought conviction, because they saw from the Word of God who Jesus is and what they are and what need they have of him and what Jesus does in our heart and our life when he redeems our soul as we repent from our sin and, uh, and turn to him in faith and uh, accept the gift that he's given us in salvation. Now it's important here that all of this is unfolded. Then it says from that time forward he began to teach. And so he's indicating here now that they've come to this understanding, he can go deeper. His walk with them, his teaching, his instruction, his power demonstrated seems to go to a different, uh, a, a deeper level. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. So now he's getting down to uh, the brass tacks of this is why I'm here. All of this is leading to this moment. All of my 
life, all of my ministry, all of my choosing of you, all of my healing, all of my resurrecting, all of the things that I've done, all the power that I've displayed in casting out uh, devils from people, all of it is to this end that I would uh, be taken into custody, that I would be wrongfully and illegally tried, that I would be put on a cross, and that I would give myself up a sacrifice, becoming your sin, so that God's wrath could be poured out upon my body, so that atonement could be made, so that God's justice could be satisfied. Pastor, what about God's love? God's love is displayed in the fact that Jesus gave himself up. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus lays down his life, that the Father and the Father made the sacrifice, that atonement might be made, that justice might be served, uh, that, uh, that holiness and righteousness might be satisfied. And when he became our sin, and he descended into that grave, three days later rising victorious, the Bible and the gospel fulfilled, then Jesus rose in power, uh, and he's leading them. These are the things that I came for that have to take place and notice their response. Now I understand Peter just came to a point where Jesus said to him, who does the world say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I'm going to build my church and they're all amen. That's right. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And then Jesus breaks some bad news to him. Really the bad news is the good news, but to them it seemed bad when at the moment. And Peter immediately rears up and says, uh, and it's almost as if he pulls him aside and says, wait a minute, Lord, and begins to rebuke the Lord uh, for what he says here. So when we understand this, let's just kind of break this down for a moment. Look in verse number 24. Jesus said, then said Jesus unto his disciples after he confronts Peter uh, and Peter talks to him. And we'll cover that in just a moment. <coughs> but he says, then said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, I've made a sacrifice to redeem your soul. You must make a sacrifice to be my disciple. I cannot be a true follower. I cannot be a true disciple of Jesus. I can be a saved man. My soul can be redeemed. But there's a difference between knowing that Jesus is my Savior and surrendering and submitting my life to follow him. To become his disciple. To make and lay down my life a sacrifice. And so in verse 24, when he says uh, to follow him, what that word follow means is to be in the same way with, to accompany, especially as a disciple. In other words, uh, I am going to walk with you in the same way, not down the same path, but with the same values, with the same purpose, with the same goals, with the same heart, with the same compassion. Now, listen, it is not possible that they could just simply decide one in one moment uh, that I'm going to do everything just like Jesus. What the decision is, is, Lord, I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to commit myself to you. This is a process that takes place, and it's a process still today. If we would be the disciple of Jesus, then we have to go on the journey with him, and we must stay surrendered and submitted to him so that he is constantly and continually changing us into his image. So as a disciple, I am accompanying him. I am living as he lives. I am going where he goes. I am doing what he does. I am walking or living in agreement with Jesus. And so you could say this, a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus is someone who is living as Jesus lived or in the way with, in other words, my life is in agreement with Jesus. 
Can I say this morning, can you say this morning, if you truly look inwardly, that my heart, that my thought, that my actions are in agreement with Jesus? That they're in agreement with his purpose? That they're in agreement with his values? That they're in agreement with his compassion? I'll just tell you, sometimes uh, whenever I'm driving around town, the last thing that I'm in agreement with in my spirit uh, towards the people that I'm dri- that are driving in front of me, behind me, or next to me uh, is the spirit that I think Jesus would have. We have to be mindful of the fact that though a lot of things in life happen that cause us to lose focus, that a true disciple is one who is striving to live their life in agreement with, with who and what Jesus Christ is, not just from 11 o'clock until 1230 on Sunday afternoon uh, and morning and afternoon, uh, but every moment of the day, every day of the week, every place that we go. Am I accompanying him this morning? See, the reality is, is that this is what we want out of the Christian life. We want to say, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and then we go and live our life, and we want Jesus to follow along with us. Rather than saying, Jesus, I'm your disciple, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? Lord, what do you have to teach me today? See, we get sometimes the mindset where we would never say this, uh, and we don't intentionally go about it this way, but sometimes we behave in such a way that it's more like, okay, Lord, I'm going to teach you something today. What are we going to teach him? I mean, we live that way. Our, our arrogance and our sin and our pride and our human nature takes over and rises to the top. And it's as if uh, we sit in uh, our with our Bibles open, uh, already having decided what it says or what we want it to say, and trying to figure out how we can make it say that so we feel good about who we are, rather than coming to the Lord with an open book and an open heart and saying, Oh Lord, would you examine my soul and would you break me down and would you show me my failings and would you Build me and teach me who and what you are that you might make me you. Remember, he said, and we've covered this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus has to make us. And so when we look into this point, I would say this, that they have just confessed him as Christ. And he has just promised them a victorious church as he presents to them the details of his sufferings that are necessary. And then Peter rebukes him. Can you imagine, and to the point that I was just making, the audacity of Peter rebuking the Messiah against doing the very thing that he was sent here by his father to do. But yet we do the same thing. It's easy to criticize Peter because Peter was outspoken. Because Peter tried with all of his heart and might to live a life of faith. There are a lot of things through Peter's life. No one else had the courage or the faith to get out of the boat. He said, but pastor, he failed. Well, his failure was more of a success than the success of those that stayed in the boat. He experienced something that no one else experienced. He grew more than anyone else grew. And yes, he has to face the rebuke that comes sometimes with that. Uh, But the reality is, is that Jesus was working in his life. And we're taken back by the thought that we would say to God, uh, you know, uh, no, that's not going to be. But yet the same Jesus is in our lives on a daily basis. So then Jesus rebukes him. And it's interesting. He calls him Satan. He's not calling him Satan as in Lucifer. 
He's not saying you are the fallen one. He's saying you are my adversary. The name Satan, the word Satan means adversary. So Jesus is not trying to transform who Peter is. He's trying to expose the spirit by which Peter lives. And he's saying this, he's saying to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, get thee behind me, adversary. Now listen, Peter's a called disciple. He has walked for an extended period of time with Jesus everywhere that he's gone. He has seen miracle after miracle. And yet Jesus now calls him adversary. And the lesson is that at any point in time that my desires, that my will, that my heart, even for a moment runs contrary to the heart of God, then in that moment and in that mindset, I am adversarial to what God is trying to accomplish in someone's life. Every Christian, no matter how good at times, will become an adversary to God. The, the problem is whenever we stay determined to live that way, we will from time to time slip into a mindset or an activity or action uh, or, uh, or, you know, get into a, a, a state in our sin uh, and this flesh where we become adversarial to God. We don't want to stay there. We want God to draw us back. We want him to forgive our sin. We want him to convict us. And so here's his offense in verse 23. Uh, notice what he says here. But he turned and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but that be of men. So what is his great transgression? What is his sin here that Jesus rebukes him and says you're an adversary? It is simply this, that he savored the things that are not of God, but those that are of men. So what does the word savorous mean? It means simply to set affection on, to be mentally disposed to or inclined to a certain direction. So when I fall into a way of life in which my natural bend or way of thought is to the things of this world, then I become adversarial to the things of God. So for the disciple, the rebuke is not that we sometimes stumble and fall and quickly repent and uh, make things right with the Lord and have our fellowship restored. The problem is that when we are bent in our disposition to the things of man, when we are accustomed to and clinging to an attitude that thinks like the world, where we're not willing to allow Jesus to change our thoughts and our thought patterns and our values, that we're not letting him define who we are becoming in life. And he says, Peter, you are an offense. You are a stumbling block to me because your heart is bent toward the things of man rather than toward the things of God. So my question this morning is simply is this for myself and for you. What is my heart bent towards? What do I long for? What do I plan out in my life? What activities do I look most forward to? What is it that I try to avoid? Am I heart, is my heart naturally drawn to this world or is my heart naturally drawn to God? It can't be to both. It's one or the other. So it's not about necessarily so much where I am as where I'm headed. 
I would say this, you know, <coughs> a person who just got saved and make this uh, hell over here and heaven on that side, uh, and the guy that's that, that just trusted Jesus uh, is right over here on the edge, but he's headed this way, is in a better place spiritually and is a better and more uh, sincere follower of Jesus than the guy that's all the way over here but has lost focus on Jesus and has let his natural attention bend back toward the world. He's headed back in the wrong direction. This person may look better on the outside than that one does. This person might be able to kind of uh, play church really well for a long period of time before anybody would notice that, hey, something's not something's amiss. Something's not right in their heart or their attitude or, uh, or their effectiveness for the cause of Christ. Who's the better Christian pastor? Well, on the outside, this guy, but really in reality, the one that's over here, because where's their heart bent? What direction are they headed? What's the focus of their life? What's the driving factor uh, that's pushing them forward? And so the heart and mind of an authentic follower of Jesus will be bent toward the things of God. Where is our heart bent to this morning? What is our heart in pursuit of this morning? And listen, I'm not I'm not preaching this morning against uh, against enjoying life and enjoying the fruit of your labor and uh, and, and taking time away. Jesus took time away sometimes. I'm saying this morning, what's our focus? What's our driving factor? What is it that we're about? What defines my life? Three thoughts about this this morning. Number one, I would say that, that those that would be an authentic follower of Jesus must follow his life of surrender. Notice what he says again in verse number 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see what Jesus just did? He just lopped off the multitude that we technically would call disciples or followers that are really not sincere in their fellowship. He just cut off the 5,000 and the 4,000 that he fed. I'm not, I'm not saying he cut them off in the sense that he didn't minister to them. I'm saying he's making a distinction between the two groups. He's, he's showing here that there's more to being my disciple than just cloaking yourself in Christian garb and learning Christian terminology and having a few Christian values. There's more about true fellowship and discipleship. There is a taking up of our cross and living a life of surrender. Why? Because Jesus' life was a life of surrender. It was a life of self-denial. It was a life that was surrendered to his Father. And so a life that would be pleasing to God and that would truly be identified uh, as a life uh, that is the life of a disciple begins with, first of all, I would say being the life of surrender, being surrendered to the will of God. Being surrendered to God's will. Notice in John chapter 5 and verse 30, and for sake of time, I'm going to move through these things quickly. You may need to just jot them down and listen. He said, Jesus said, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Listen, if Jesus had to submit and surrender to the will of the Father, how much more should we surrender to the will of the Father? If Jesus had to humble himself, how much more must I humble myself? And when we come and we understand that if I would choose to live the life of a disciple, that, that begins with surrender. 
I know that I'm saved. I put my faith and trust in him. I've been baptized. I'm a part of the church that God has planted me in. That does not make me a disciple. That makes me a believer. But a true disciple that's walking in step with Jesus must live a surrendered life. Jesus surrendered to the will of God. Not only must we be surrendered to his will, but we must be surrendered to his leading. Okay, God, I surrender to your will. Well, then, okay, you're surrendered to my will. Let me lead you where I need you to go. And then we resist. Well, I don't like it over there. It's too hot over there. It's too cold over there. It's too this. It's too that. That's not my comfort zone. Listen, Jesus is not concerned about our comfort zone so much as he's concerned about the message of the gospel getting to those who need it. And we should be willing to surrender and if need be to make some sacrifices to accommodate the fulfillment of the will of God. And by the way, Jesus did not only say this, he lived it. He is our example in everything. And in Matthew chapter 4, uh, we see that in the first 11 verses, and we don't have time to read the whole text, but notice in verse number 1 says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. There aren't too many people that have lived that experience of knowing what it would be like to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. But Jesus did. And he was attacked and he was tempted in his areas of weakness by someone that's a master tempter in Satan. In that moment of weakness, immediately after he was baptized. He didn't wait. Immediately he was surrendered. Immediately the, the Spirit of God began to lead him. And the Spirit of God did not lead him to a place of peace and ease and comfort. The Spirit of God led him to a place of trial and temptation. Why? He needed to be built. He needed to prove. He needed to set an example. He was surrendered to the leading of God. And listen, we can come in every Sunday uh, for decades and we can worship and we can praise God and we can be sincere in the doing of it, but yet not live up to the level of discipleship that Jesus wants from us until we come to the place where I say, God, I am surrendered to your will and I am surrendered to your leading. I will do and I will go where you lead me just lead me without prerequisite without stipulation without anywhere but there it's been the experience of our life that whenever we've said lord we would go anywhere just please don't send us there that the very place that we were sent was the place that we asked not to be sent you'd think that we'd learn our lesson but we're slow learners sometimes Sonia and I. But I think it applies to you too. And when we come to life and when we look at what Jesus has for us, what I would say is this, is that our life must be a life of surrender. If I would be a true follower of Jesus, if I would be a true disciple of Jesus, then I must follow his life of surrender. Secondly, I would say this, that we must follow his life of solitude. Live for God and you will find yourself a lonely person. I'm not saying that you'll always be lonely. I'm not saying that God won't give you friends. I'm saying that when you make a decision to truly become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you better brace yourself for significant changes in relationships throughout your life. Because the people that you thought were your friends and the family that you thought loved you and were the closest to you will be the ones that will turn on you the most viciously. 
And they won't do so because you got up and got preachy. They'll do so because they got convicted when they saw the change in your life, whether you say anything or not. That's just the reality of it. Jesus lived a life of solitude. So, Pastor, everywhere you go, Jesus is with people. You're right. It's very easy for me to understand what it's like to be in the midst of a crowd of people and yet be very lonely. Jesus was surrounded by people constantly that were taking from him. Much more than he was surrounded by people that wanted to be with him. I wonder this morning how many Christians sit in churches just like this all over the world because they need something from Jesus. Not because they want to be with him. Jesus lived a life of solitude. He lived a life in which he was largely alone. His own family at one point uh, rebuked him and wouldn't receive him. The town that he grew up in and that he labored in uh, until he uh, began his ministry rejected him. He knew what it was like to be lonely, to have to formulate new relationships. And so if we're going to follow him, we must be willing to follow his life of solitude. In other words, he said, take up your cross. Take up your cross. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Have I denied myself this morning? Have I put myself on notice and said, Lord, I'm, anything that I have in my life, you gave it to me if you wanted it yours. Anywhere you want me to go, I'll go. Anything you want me to learn, I'll learn. Anything you want me to do, I'll do and mean it. And then say, I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to be willing what did Jesus demonstrate for us? If you look in Matthew chapter 14 and verse number 23, we see here that uh, Jesus here, uh, it says, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening would come, was come, he was there alone. He even sent the disciples on ahead. He's going to come to them walking on the water after this. And Peter will join him for a moment before he gets distracted. And what we see is that Jesus' life of solitude was a life of prayer. I wonder how many of us have spent much time in prayer in the last several days. I wonder how many of us have stayed connected to God as God worked in our heart. It was a life of prayer. His life of solitude not only was a life of prayer, but it was a life of purpose. He didn't just come randomly. He wasn't here uh, for a vacation from heaven. He was here on purpose for a purpose. In John uh, chapter number 12 and verse number 27, uh, as he is preparing to go to the cross, he said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say as he prays? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I to this hour. What God had selected and chosen for Jesus was difficult to accept even for Jesus, and he knew and was part of the planning of what was necessary, and yet still in this moment, he's in prayer, he's alone, and he's reminding himself before the difficulty comes that I must take up this cross. This is the plan. This is why I'm here. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves that we're here for a purpose. We need to be in prayer with him, a life of solitude that's in prayer, that's purposeful, a life that's a life of passion. 
in Hebrews uh, chapter number 2 and verse number 9, we see here <clears throat> that he says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. It was a life of passion. It was a life in which he was committed fully, completely, and utterly to what God had called him to do, what God had sent him to do. How many of us would say and can say in our own heart that I am following Jesus with a surrendered life, that I'm following Jesus in a life of solitude, of prayer? I know my purpose and I'm passionate about pursuing it and fulfilling it. Thirdly and lastly, we see this. And Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Thirdly, this morning, we see that we must follow his life of service. The life of Jesus was not a life of being served. The life of Jesus was a life of serving others. As we come and we see him at work and him cultivating relationships and him uh, saving souls and doing all the things that he did. What you see when Jesus everywhere that he went is that he was serving those that needed to be served. He was serving them truth. He was meeting their needs. And he met physical needs to gain an opening and an opportunity to, to meet spiritual needs. There was that purpose to follow his life of service in John chapter 13 in verse 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye love one another. Can we honestly say this morning that we love God's people? Can we say honestly in our heart this morning that we love those that are lost and we have a burden to see them come to Christ? Live to love. Jesus lived to love. He daily looked for opportunities to express that love even to those that were unlovely. I love Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm glad that I didn't have to turn over a new leaf and I didn't have to get my act together before Jesus decided that he would show me love. Jesus showed me love when I was unlovely, when I was unlovable. Jesus showed me love when I was at my worst. He showed me love when I was at my most hateful. He showed me love when I was in my most vile. His love was not given conditionally, but unconditionally. His love was demonstrated willfully and freely. And those that would be a follower of Jesus, when he says, follow me, we have taken up a cross, we have surrendered our life to him, and then we begin to walk in the way with him, which means we begin serving those around us, serving their need, serving to gain opportunity to serve the Spirit. It was a life, and he lived to love, he also lived to labor. But he did not waste his labor on things of this earth. He did not waste his labor on things that would perish. John chapter number 6 and verse number 27. He says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him 
hath God the Father sealed. Are we laboring? Are we investing? Are we expending energy this morning on things that do not matter? Are we expending our energy on the things of God? On becoming who God wants us to become? On reaching those that God wants us to reach and investing in the lives of those that are hungering for truth and seeking a way that are looking for guidance. Listen, Jesus saved us and we were baptized and we're part of a ministry, a church, so that we can labor together, so that we can encourage one another, so that we can be equipped for the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? It is fulfilling the purpose for which we were created to carry out the Great Commission and to not leave people at baptism to find out on their own how to live life in a way that pleases God. To make disciples as He's making us a disciple. How do I do that, Pastor? It really it comes down to this. What do I savor? If I would answer the question this morning in my own heart, Am I a biblical follower of Jesus? Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? How do I answer that question? Well, the obvious thing is first this. If I have never received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, I can't even begin the journey. If you're here this morning and there's any doubt in your heart whatsoever about where you would spend eternity, may I say to you this morning that Jesus uh, that John wrote as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that these things have I written unto you, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know. And it's not about a feeling. It's about a decision, a relationship. It's about recognizing and understanding my position outside of Christ, my condition in my sin, and realizing that I will spend an eternity isolated and cut off from God uh, in hell, not because I was good or because I was bad, but because I either accepted or I rejected the gift that God gave me, that he offered to us. Have you this morning ever had a time in your life where you have said, I realize my need, I am repentant or sorry for my sin, and Lord, I ask for your forgiveness, and I accept your gift, inviting you to come into my heart and be my Savior. And in that moment, our position changes from being a lost person to being a child of God, born into his family, never to be removed. We bear the family name. We should bear the family resemblance. Would we allow God to change and, and bring us into his image? So if I would answer that question this morning, Pastor, am I a disciple? My advice to you and my suggestion to you would be to answer this question. Do you savor the things of God? It's really that simple. Jesus, am I your disciple? What's most important to you? Jesus, am I a follower of you? What do you naturally drift to? What is it, Christian, that you drift to? What is it that you long for? What is it that you're bent toward? Because therein lies your answer. May God help us all to be growing in the grace of our Savior, that we all become bent to the things of God, that we all savor the things of God.
over the things of this world. And when we come to the place where God has helped us to do that, then we could say, yes, Father, I am your disciple. And I am ready to go out into this world and to make disciples as you build your church.